Romans 14, 19 through 23. Listen to this. This is the very word of God. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. And that is the reading of God's word. Let's ask the Lord now to bless his word to us. Father in heaven, we pray that as we turn to the scriptures now, that our hearts, our souls will hear Christ speaking in the word. May your Holy Spirit be our teacher. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. I'd like to encourage uh, you, if you haven't already, to sign up to help with the nursery. Uh, We we need more nursery workers, and the more we have, the the less often each individual person has to serve. And that actually has something to do with the sermon. Uh, You might be wondering why I threw that in there. Uh, Just a a shameless pitch for nursery volunteers, but... uh, no, you can, you can learn a lot from working in the nursery. Just being around little children, it's a, it's a tremendous study in human nature. And uh, if you've played with a little child recently, especially, for instance, if you use building blocks, you, know, you can take the blocks and you can build something neat with these toys that the kids play with. And... You know, you do it carefully. You have to balance things on top of each other. And it takes time to build something with building blocks. But it doesn't take any time for a kid to come by and just whack it and knock the whole thing down, does it? And it's a reminder to us how, how difficult and painstaking it can be to build and how easy it is sometimes, oftentimes, to destroy It's harder. It takes more time to build. Chapter 14 of Romans is concerned with differences of opinion among Christians. Differences of opinion among Christians about matters that are um, non-essential. Matters upon which the Scriptures don't necessarily speak clearly. Or if they do speak clearly, uh, they say things that not everybody's quite ready to come on board with. In, in the case of the weaker brother, as, uh, as the Scripture refers to him, the one who thinks he can't do this or can't do that because it would displease God, when in actuality and according to the Holy Scriptures, it's fine. <clears throat> so that's what 14 uh, has been speaking about from the beginning differences of conscience among Christians, and differences of conviction 
that Christians have one from another, differences in practice. And the operative principle we find when we get to the conclusion of chapter 14 is faith. What determines what you should do? What determines what you should believe? Well, you have to act upon the faith that has been given to you. In fact, I think one way we could summarize the the message of this conclusion of Romans 14 is that the whole Christian life is guided and supported and governed by faith. The whole Christian life, it's all about faith. Governed by faith. And the, the three points that I want to organize this message around are, first of all, the priorities of faith. Secondly, there is a private aspect of faith that we ought to consider. And then finally, just the general necessity of faith. So first of all, the priorities of faith. What are faith's priorities? I know some of you are goal setters. You're the kind of people who like to have goals in mind, and you write them down maybe, and you you pursue your goals in life, and that's a good thing. Uh, Organizations such as a, a military unit or a corporation or a small business will usually have some kind of a mission statement. What are they about? What's their purpose for existing? What are they trying to do? I don't know how many of you are are goal setters, but in verse 19 of Romans 14, goals are set for you. You don't have to figure these out. They're just laid out for you in Scripture. Here's what you should be going after. So if you're a Christian, these should be your objectives. If you make a personal mission statement, this ought to be included in it. Your objectives should be peace and edification among your brothers and sisters. Peace and edification in the church of Jesus Christ. Or uh, edification means upbuilding, as the, the text says. Be governed by these priorities. Be governed by these things. Pursue these things. The word in verse 19, so then let us pursue, that, that, that Greek word signifies an eager pursuit, something you're really going after diligently, something that uh, you're chiefly intent upon, and so we ought to be chiefly intent as Christians and as brothers and sisters in Christ, we ought to be chiefly intent upon peace and upbuilding. <clears throat> and, and to kind of give you a taste of, of the, the sort of zeal that the word for pursue uh, carries with it uh, in the Greek, that word, the Greek word, is sometimes translated to persecute. So it describes the kind of behavior that people had towards the Apostle Paul as they were offended by his ministry and and sought to put him to death and as they chased him from town to town. It's that kind and, and actually it's the same word too that was used of Paul, what he was doing to Christians before he was converted. So when the Scriptures say pursue what leads to peace or what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. It's talking about that kind of energy, that kind of zeal in the pursuit. Press on 
is how it's translated twice in Philippians 3. Let us press on for the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And so we are to press on for peace and we're to press on for mutual upbuilding. First of all, peace. Press on, brothers and sisters. Press on for peace. Peace in the church. Jesus said in the Beatitudes, blessed are the peacemakers. And the way he describes their blessedness is that they shall be called sons of God. Those who make peace will be called sons of God because they're imitators of Christ in that sense. Christ came to make peace between God and man. He said he didn't come to bring peace on earth, but he came to make peace between sinners and the God who is offended by their sin. And when we make peace amongst one another and pursue peace and press on for peace, we are being like Christ as peacemakers. Mark 9 Verse 50, Jesus commanded his disciples. He said, be at peace with one another. And it strikes me that after Jesus was raised from the dead, on several occasions over those 40 days uh, while he was still on earth, or however long he was on earth, before his ascension, when he would greet the people, what were the words he used? Peace be with you. Luke 24, when he appeared to the disciples, peace be with you, he said. And in John chapter 20, he says it three times. Peace be with you. And so we have that apostolic greeting. Grace and peace to you. By my count, it appears in at least 15 of the New Testament letters. So whether it was Paul or Peter or John, James, they would write to the churches and they would greet them by saying grace and peace to you. You see the centrality and the importance of peace and that's why we ought to press on for it. So we're to press on for peace and we're to press on for mutual upbuilding. That word doesn't probably strike you as strange if you are a reader of your Bible, but that's not a word we toss out uh, in normal conversation uh, on a day-to-day basis. Upbuilding. Well, that's not a word we use, is it? We, uh, we use other words that mean the same thing, but the Scripture uses this word upbuilding, and I think it, it's intended to give us a picture of, uh, of what you do to improve a structure. If you have a, a walled city and you know an army is coming against you to lay siege to you, you're going to reinforce your walls. You're going to fortify the city. And that's what upbuilding is. It's a strengthening. And Christians should be continually working to edify one another. That's what we should be pressing on for, to build one another up. So Paul, writing to the church in Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians 5.11, he says, Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. See, they were doing this, and he's saying, keep on. Keep doing that. Press on for upbuilding. Now, when Paul was writing to the church in Corinth, 
And he was dealing with this same issue that's, that's before us in Romans 14, the issue of Christian liberty. And you had Christians in the church in Corinth who knew that it was okay for them to do certain things, but they had brothers and sisters in the church with them who were offended by those things. And the stronger brethren were having disregard for the weaker brethren. And so when Paul wrote to them, he, he kind of parrots back to them something they probably wrote to him in a letter. And they're justifying their actions and saying, all things are lawful. And so Paul writes back to them and he says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful. Yes, you're right. But not all things build up. You see? And we ought to pursue and press on for mutual upbuilding. The, Corinth, the, the church in Corinth, they were well instructed in liberty, you see, but they had bad practice when it came to love. And Matthew Henry, the great commentator, makes the point, lawful things can be done in an unlawful way. And that's, that's the problem that's being addressed here. Press on for peace, Press on for mutual upbuilding. Because the church in, in many places in the Bible is likened unto a building. There are a lot of metaphors that the Holy Spirit uses in Scripture to describe the church as a corporate entity. It's described as a body. But it's also described as a house or as a building. And so in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul said, you are God's building. And that's true of you here today as well. You are God's building. And in 1 Peter 2, 5, the apostle writes, you, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. That's the analogy. That's the, that's the metaphor that's used here. And um, so throughout this present life, we individually, but also corporately, which is more of what's in view here, we're all a work in progress aren't we? We're in the process, by God's grace, of being strengthened, being fortified, being built up. None of us is a finished product. None of us has arrived. And so the message here, with respect to priorities of faith, is don't tear down through a lack of love or inconsideration what the Lord is building. Now, if you're, if you're someone who takes notes uh, on sermons, you want to write that down in section four. You can skip down there under application. You can write this down. Don't tear down what the Lord is building. We do that when we are careless, when we're inconsiderate of others, and when, we, when we're really displaying by, in that way a lack of love. Your brother's spiritual wellness is infinitely more important than any food or beverage you might desire. You might like this or that, and you might be convinced in your own mind that it's acceptable for you to partake of whatever that is. But much, much more important than your enjoyment of whatever that thing is is the wellness of your brother or your sister in Christ. That's the priority of faith. We sang about that 
in that hymn of preparation. A life of self-renouncing love is one of liberty. So we can claim our liberty, and we do have liberty in Christ, but true liberty is found in that self-renouncing love that says, I care more about my brother or sister's well-being than my ability to partake of X, Y, or Z. That's the priority of faith. Well, now, the the passage that we're looking at today also speaks, then, of a private aspect of faith. We see it in verse 22 in the first part of that verse. It says, the faith that you have keeps between yourself and God. It goes on to say, blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But I want to focus on that first statement there. The faith that you have keeps between yourself and God. Now, let me explain right up front that when it's speaking about faith in that verse, it's not talking about saving faith. Um, Our Christianity is not a private matter. Our Christianity is not a personal matter in the sense that uh, it's just sort of uh, nobody else has anything to do with it. Yes, we do have individually a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. That is part of being born again. And you individually have a relationship with Him. He is your Savior. You are God's child. But your Christianity isn't private. It's not secret. Otherwise, why would Christ have said, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. No, we're not supposed to keep our faith and our light under a bushel or in a closet. No, we're to shine. Our Christianity is not a secret affair. Uh, If you look at Mark chapter 8, verse 38, Jesus said this, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So you see this dynamic, which I sometimes call reciprocal shame. In other words, if your Christianity is something you you don't want anybody to know about, You're ashamed of Christ. And he says, if you're ashamed of me in this present sinful generation, I'll be ashamed of you when I come in the glory of my heavenly Father. That means the judgment day. And you don't want Jesus to be ashamed of you on the judgment day. So don't be ashamed of him now. Our faith isn't a secret thing. Verse 22 then, here in Romans 14, is not talking about saving faith. Because saving faith is not something you can keep to yourself. In fact, I would go as far to say, as far as to say that if you're unwilling or unable to articulate your faith, to speak to others about your faith, then it's likely that you don't actually have saving faith. You know, in modern contemporary religious culture, we treat a profession of faith is some kind of fire insurance. Like, oh, I pray this prayer and then I know I won't go to hell. That's not saving faith. 
And it won't protect you from any fire, spiritual or otherwise. If you're not willing to speak of your faith in Christ, you probably don't have faith in Christ. But there is an aspect of your faith, an aspect of the life of faith that is best kept between you and God. It's an aspect of how you live out your life. It's not the the faith itself, but part of that walk that's best kept oftentimes between you and God. And it's talking about that in verse 22 when it says the faith that you have. It's speaking of people who have a certain maturity of faith and because of that maturity in their faith or their, their strong faith, they have a certain amount of liberty. This is a reference in verse 22 of a religious conviction on a particular matter of conscience. We could plug in all kinds of examples. The example given, or one of the examples given in the text itself is eating meat. And we'll, we'll kind of try to flesh that out, no pun intended, uh, here in just a moment. But um, it's speaking of a religious conviction on a particular matter of conscience. In other words, your belief regarding some particular matter. Is it right or is it wrong for Christians to go to movies? Is it right or is it wrong for Christians to drink wine? That's what's in view here. That faith, your belief about that thing, keep it between yourself and God. What do you do with your personal convictions? And this is especially addressed to those people that feel that they have the liberty to do this or that. You've got this liberty. You've got this faith. What do you do with it? You keep it. So verse 22 says, the faith that you have keep. You don't toss out your convictions because of others. You don't renounce them, but you keep it, how? Between yourself and God. Use your liberty, in other words. That's what it's for. It's freedom. Use it, but do so with humility. Do so with caution. Do so with prudence. Do so with self-denial. That last verse of the hymn, it's exactly what it said. A life of self-renouncing love. You know, my brother, I regard my brother as more important than me. Keep your liberty, but keep it between yourself and God. The way Charles Hodge put it regarding our liberty, he said, use it, but do so in a considerate and charitable manner. Now, let me put this in historical context just real quick because he talks about meat. He says it's good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. In the ancient world, in the first century, if you went into a market, you went grocery shopping, essentially, and you wanted to buy some meat, wanted to buy some other kinds of produce, whatever was on your shopping list, When you go to the meat that's offered in the market, the chances were very, very good. In fact, it was almost um, inevitable that the meat being sold in the market had previously been offered in sacrifice to an idol. And there were Christians who believed that because that meat had been offered in sacrifice that they shouldn't eat it because it was defiled. It was unholy. It was unclean. 
And that's the context here. The same was true of wine, and there are other issues, of course, with wine, but what you bought in the market was left over from pagan worship, and that was the issue. And Paul, in his dialogue with the Corinthians, affirms their understanding of the situation here because they wrote to Paul and said, an idol doesn't have any existence. Why should it matter if something's been offered to something that isn't real? And he's saying, you know, you're right about that. Idols aren't gods, and they have no existence. And so that is the basis upon which New Testament liberty is built, at least partially. Uh, Things can't really be made unclean by an idol, because idols aren't gods. They're, They're harmless, and whatever is sold in the market is safe. But there were some consciences that were very sensitive to their former beliefs. You know, if you were a Jew who had converted to Christianity, your people for 1,500 years had abstained from certain kinds of foods. And they were very sensitive about anything that might have been offered, even if it was uh, in and of itself lawful for them to eat. You know, mutton, you know, lamb, beef, whatever. They wouldn't even eat that even though it was clean meat in and of itself, if it had been offered to an idol, they couldn't do it. They couldn't bring themselves. And so their consciences were very tender in that way. And in some cases, people just had misconceptions. But for whatever reason, some people wouldn't eat the meat, wouldn't drink the wine, whereas others would. And so therefore, you have verse 21. Look at it with me. Verse 21. It is good not to eat meat, or drink wine, or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. When it says it is good there, what that means is it is right. It is morally obligatory that you not do something that's going to cause your brother to stumble. You're to be governed by faith. The whole Christian life is guided and governed by faith. And if you have faith, then you're going to care about your brother's well-being, and you're not going to do the things that cause him to stumble. It's a great thing in the sense that it's a, it's a lofty thing. It's a, it's a big deal to keep a conscience that's void of offense. So you see that some things are better kept to oneself. Doesn't mean you can't drink wine or eat meat or do this, that, or the other thing. It means you don't parade it in front of others who don't share the same conviction as you. Discretion is a virtue. It's a Christian virtue. Galatians chapter 5, where we find the fruit of the Spirit. That fruit of the Spirit... All nine of, of which items in that list form one fruit. These are not multiple fruits of the Spirit. This is one fruit, and it includes peace. Pursue peace, right? Press on for it. It includes patience. It includes kindness, gentleness, self-control. 
the kind of self-control that's willing to, to dispense with something for the sake of another person. Or when Paul was writing about love in 1 Corinthians 13, he said, love does not insist on its own way. And he said, love is patient, love is kind. See, a a person embodying these qualities, fruit of the Spirit and, and, and true love, as Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians 13, that kind of person is not the kind of person who's going to parade themselves. Commentator William Plummer wrote, Torment not others because they cannot see with your eyes. Get that? Torment not others because they cannot see with your own eyes. They have a different view on something. Well, don't, don't badger them. Don't abuse them just because they don't see things the way you do. He goes on to say, Speak not as though wisdom would die with you. Even if your views are correct, perhaps this is not the best time to adopt them. Everything is beautiful in its season. So there's a private aspect to faith. Enjoy your liberty and privacy. Don't parade it. But then finally we come to the necessity of faith. That's what I think we find in verse 23. Because now it's speaking to the person who thinks something is wrong, but they may be kind of inclined or maybe feeling pressured to do or to partake of that thing that they believe in their hearts is wrong for them. And so verse 23 says, But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. I want to address that in a big picture sense before I come back to what it's specifically speaking to here in context, all right? The necessity of faith, because this passage is talking about Christian liberty, but first I want to point out more generally that faith is indispensable to the Christian life. It's central to the Christian life. It's crucial. The whole Christian life is guided, supported, and governed by faith. Now, it's true, certainly, no doubt, that we are saved by grace through faith. But it doesn't stop there. Faith is not only the door into the Christian life. Faith is the path of the Christian life. And so it says in 2 Corinthians 5-7, we walk by faith. We live by faith. That's what Paul said in Galatians 2.20. The life I now... He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. Christ lives in me. And the life I now live, I live... What? By faith. Faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. So we live by faith. We walk by faith. Scripture uses that kind of language again and again. And when Paul is criticizing the church in Galatia about their, their, you know, their feeling the tug to go back to Judaism or they're feeling pressure from Jewish converts to, to subscribe to and practice all the Jewish rituals and, and, and 
and the ceremonial aspects. And he says, look, you began in the Spirit. Are you going to be perfected by works? You began in the Spirit. Are you going to be perfected now and are you going to carry on in the flesh? In other words, if you began by faith, are you going to finish by your own effort, by your own power? No. Scripture describes faith as a shield. It's a shield that each one of us is given by the Holy Spirit, by God, as part of your full armor. And that shield is so powerful that with it you can quench the fiery darts of the wicked one. That's how important faith is. That's how central it is to all of the Christian life. Each and every day, it's not just the beginning. That's what Paul meant in Romans chapter 1 when he's talking about the gospel and it's the power of God for salvation. And he says, for in it, in the gospel, Romans 1, 17, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now that phrase, from faith for faith, is a very good, accurate, uh, faithful translation of the Greek. But it's, again, it's language that maybe we, we think, well, what does that mean exactly? And I think... Uh, another version, such as the, uh, uh, the, the New Living Translation, which in general I, I don't recommend as your primary Bible, but it, there are places where the New Living Translation really gets to the, uh, to the essence of what a text means. And when Paul says righteousness is from faith for faith, or however your version translates it, what it's saying is the Christian life is by faith from start to finish. You never outgrow the need for faith. You never outgrow your dependency upon faith. It's necessity. It's a necessity of the Christian life. It's all-encompassing. And we read in Hebrews 11, verse 6, without faith, it is impossible to please God. You can't please God. No one can without faith. And so in Proverbs 15, 8, it speaks of the sacrifice of the wicked. And we can take that word sacrifice to just sort of encompass any kind of religious practice, any effort to worship. And it says that the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. Why? Because he doesn't offer it in faith. Proverbs 28, 9, the prayer of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. How could that be? Doesn't God like it when people pray to him? Well, prayer that's not offered in faith is not acceptable to him. Even the good things that men do are unacceptable to God without faith. And that's the truth of the Scripture. Anything that does not proceed from faith is sin. And so in the, in the big picture sense, that's what this means. That's what this is teaching us. And this is yet another reason, by the way, you can put this under application too. This is another reason why it's so important that we share Christ with the unbelievers. Another reason why it's so important that we, that we share the gospel. Because no matter how nice a person is, that neighbor or that coworker, no matter how upstanding a citizen a person might be, no matter how sincere or kind or generous or helpful people are, they are not acceptable to God apart from Christ the mediator. They need the gospel. 
and we need to take the gospel to them. But the specific concern here in the text is not about faith as generally necessary, but it's concerned with the practice of Christians and their liberty. And so he says, whoever has doubts must not eat. So you imagine the scenario where the brother who, who believes that a Christian can eat wine, drink wine or can eat meat from that marketplace that was probably offered to idols, and he's telling his, his weaker brother, it's okay, what's the problem? And that weaker brother is thinking, well, you know, I respect him, he, he knows more than I do, and he's been walking with the Lord longer than I do, I guess it must be okay, so I'm going to eat it. And Paul's saying, no, don't. Don't. If you think it's wrong, if you think it's sin, then to you it is sin. That's what he's saying here. Why? Because it wouldn't be of faith. And so again, uh, going back to what Matthew Henry said, lawful things may be done unlawfully. And in this context, the strong, the strong in faith can do something unlawfully if they exercise their liberty in such a way that it causes their brother to stumble. And the weak can do lawful things unlawfully if they do something that they're actually in their minds and hearts are are persuaded is wrong. We never have a right to do wrong. And if you think something is wrong, you shouldn't do it. The opposite, by the way, is not true. Matthew Henry said, uh, lawful things may be done unlawfully, but the reverse is not the case. Uh, Unlawful things can never be done lawfully. Let's just stick that in our back pockets and, and, and hang on to it. Unlawful things can never be done lawfully. So Charles Hodge said, it's wrong to do anything which we think to be wrong. The converse of this proposition, however, is not true. It is not always right to do what we think to be right. Paul, before his conversion, thought it right to persecute Christians. The Jews thought they did God's service when they put the disciples of the Savior out of the synagogue. The cases, therefore, are not parallel. There may, therefore, be a very sinful zeal for God and religion, and no man will be able to plead at the bar of judgment his good intention as an excuse for evil conduct. But to sum up this last point, it can never be right for you to do something that you think is wrong. Better wait, and perhaps as your conscience becomes educated, uh, maybe you'll reach a point where you realize this is okay. But if, if you're still in that spot where you believe something is sin, something is wrong, then you must listen to your conscience at that point. The way of sin is usually pretty easy. Because it comes naturally to our fallen nature. And the way of sin is easy in the sense that it uh, most often does its damage quickly. Think again of playing with building blocks. It takes time to build up a little tower with blocks, but it's quick and easy to knock it down. And in the same sense, it, all it takes is a quick or a thoughtless word or action to harm or tear down your brother or sister. But it takes patience and it takes care to build up your brothers 
and sisters in Christ. And that's what we're called to do, to build one another up. And just a final word of application. Strive. Strive for those goals of peace and edification in the church. Be builders. Be builders. Be peacemakers. Christ is in this glorious process of building his church. He's a builder. Don't work against him. Work with him. And as we come to the Lord's table today and reflect on these things even, I bring to you again some words from Matthew Henry. And he asks this, Did Christ give up a life for souls and such a life? And shall we not give up a morsel of meat for them? Do you see what he's saying? Christ laid down his life. He's the good shepherd. He laid down his life for the sheep. He gave everything for them. And will we be unwilling to give up meat or this or that for the sake of the souls of our brother and sister? He says, shall we despise those whom Christ valued at so high a rate? And what was that rate at which Christ valued you? What price did he place on you? More than gold, more than silver, more than precious stones. He shed his precious blood. He gave his body to be broken, to purchase you, to free you from death and from hell. And at the table, we remember the work that he did for us and the price that he paid for us, that great rate at which he valued you and me. So let's go to him in prayer now. Lord God, we're amazed that you should value us so highly that you'd send your only begotten son to suffer, to die in our place so that we might live with you, that we might be made holy. Thank you that he came to make peace between you and us. We rejoice in these things and now as we come to the table, we ask your blessing upon this ordinance which Christ instituted and which we now observe in, his, in obedience to him. Thank you for giving us that gift of faith. Lord, please grant that we would be governed by it, guided by it. We pray all this in Jesus' name. 